Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? Well, you are, Jeremy. Of course you are. Really? Mirror, mirror, on the wall. I'm the fairest one of all? Of course you are. You are such a good guy. You have a great sense of humor. You care deeply for people. You are brilliant. You are wise beyond your years. You are a good teacher. Your beard is ferocious. Your style is out of this world. You excel at everything you do. Wow, mirror, mirror on the wall. Never really thought about it that way. I'm the fairest one of all. Are, Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. You aren't just a good guy. You're a great guy. The greatest guy. You aren't just a funny guy with a good sense of humor. You are the funniest guy ever. You. You don't just care deeply for people. You care more deeply for people than people care about themselves. You aren't just brilliant. You're smarter than the rest. You aren't just wise beyond your years. You're smarter than all them other folks. You aren't just a good teacher. You are a great teacher. The greatest teacher the world has ever seen. Your beard. Your beard puts the dragon into bearded dragon. Your style, no one can compare. You excel at everything you do, unlike all them other failures. Wow, mirror, mirror on the wall. So you're saying that I am the fairest one of all? Of course! A little pep talk, you know. I want to welcome you to the third and final week of our sermon series called Love Matters. Over the last three weeks, we've been exploring the matters of love and how love matters. Week one, we talked about what it means to love God with everything. Last week, Jeff talked about what it means to love others. And then today, we're going to explore what does it mean that we love who we are. We're going to explore the matters of self-love. The matters of self-love. And we're going to take a look at the dangers of an unhealthy self-love, but also the importance, the importance of being okay with who we are, having a healthy perspective of who we are. So I invite you to stand if you're able to stand, and we're going to turn in our Bibles to our memory verse, Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 30. To give a little bit of context for this scripture, an expert in the religious traditions of Israel once came up to Jesus and asked him a question 
He's a teacher of all the commandments. In other words, of all the 613 laws of the Old Testament, what's the most important? And Jesus, he responded, he replied to the man with a conflation. Pulling together two scriptures from different locations in the Old Testament and bringing them together. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, and Leviticus chapter 19 Verse 18, he said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Lord, we come before you today. We want to know you. We desire to be shaped and transformed by you. So I ask God that you would break through today. That my lips would speak your words. You would speak deeply today to us, Lord, about self-love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as your self. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Does this mean love myself first of all? I mean, Jesus just said, love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like loving yourself has to actually come before loving your neighbor. It sounds like loving myself is a precondition to loving my neighbor. And if I know that I cannot adequately or authentically or passionately love God if I don't love others, and if I can't love others if I don't first love myself, then isn't loving myself the first and most important thing? I mean, shouldn't we change the scriptures to say that love yourself with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength? Absolutely not. That's the theology of the world. But if you believe that in order to love others, you first have to love yourself, you're essentially saying that Jesus here offers a third commandment. Love God, love others, and love yourself. But I believe that Jesus was and is a superb communicator. This is what he says in Mark 12, 30 through 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second, the second, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. I don't see any thirds there. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, Jesus is portrayed in a similar fashion, talking about the greatest commandment. And he says, well, yeah, the greatest commandments, love God with your heart, your soul, etc. And love your neighbor as yourself. But he concludes everything that he has to say by saying all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus was a mathematician, but discovering the difference between two and three does not require quadratic equations. 
If Jesus meant to say three commandments, he would have said three commandments. But loving yourself is not a commandment. But it certainly appears to be a part of this picture. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law, Leviticus 19, 18, where we get this whole bit about loving your neighbor as yourself. It assumes that each person, everybody has a fundamental love for herself or for himself. It's never commanded in Scripture that we should love ourselves. It assumes that we do. But you know what it makes you and what it makes me when we assume. And I don't want to do that today. And so I'm not going to draw any assumptions. I'm going to start at just a bottom line where I'm not going to assume that you may love yourself or you may hate yourself. What I want to do today is is talk about the dangers of an unhealthy self-love, but also the importance, the importance of having a healthy perspective of who we are. So if you would, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. It begins, a legal expert. Uh, that's an expert in the interpretation of the Mosaic law. So, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be saved? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being. The Greek is suke, it means soul. And with all your strength and with all your mind. So if you're reading closely, the order is different than the Gospel of Mark. But all the good stuff is there. With all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert, wanting to prove that he was right or wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And thus begins the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, or as I like to call it, the parable of the pathetic priest and the lousy Levite. But the central characters of this parable are not a pathetic priest or a lousy Levite or even the goody-two-shoed Samaritan. The central character of this story is a man. Anthropostis is the Greek. A man. A certain man. But this man is not identified by any defining features. Just that he has a really bad day. He's not identified by name or race or religion or region or trade. Just by what happens to him on this really bad day. So here Jesus replied to the man, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Hold hold up. That's not possible. 
It's impossible to go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, look on the map. Jerusalem is located to the southwest of Jericho. It's impossible to go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, geographically speaking. I mean, when you guys were in Israel, did you go, did you go south when you went to Jericho from Jerusalem? That's impossible. So does Jesus need a little bit of help here on his geography? Well, Jesus isn't talking about geography. He's talking about topography. Going down, descending in elevation because Jerusalem was located on a hill. And so here, a man, a certain man, a nameless man, goes down, goes down a road, going down 3,300 feet over a course of 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this road that this certain man went down is a notoriously dangerous road. It would weave in and around the mountainside and the hillside, and it would come to narrow passes at certain times. The surrounding terrain would offer an easy hiding spot, the caves as well, an easy hiding spot for bandits and robbers to hide and terrorize the travelers. And that's exactly what happens here. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, And left him near death. What a bad day. Just making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets jumped. Beat up. They take his clothes apparently. They leave him near death. The Greek is literally half dead. Now I don't know what that means. Does that mean he was like unconscious or just couldn't get back up? I don't know. But he's half dead. His life here hangs In the balance and the attackers, they took everything. They left him with nothing, no means of identification, no credit card, no identification card, no registration. No, all we can identify about this man is that he is in desperate need. He really needs a lot of help. Now, it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. Hallelujah! God has saved the day. We've got a holy man on the horizon. The day is saved. Rescue is here. The priest, the holy man has come to help. But when he saw the injured man, he he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. What? The text suggests that this man went out of his way, not to help, but to help himself to the other side of the road. Why? Why would this priest, this leader, this spiritual leader of Israel do such a thing? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know. Maybe he was just startled. You know, he's coming back from Jerusalem, heading to Jericho, and he's just filled with the Spirit of God. And he's just really contemplating on all the verses he heard read out of the Torah. And he's just filled up with God. He's praying. And and then all of a sudden, he sees a, a, a body, something laying there in the ground, and it startles him. He's afraid, terrified. He just keeps on going. Maybe. 
Well, maybe he was busy, you know, he's got sermons to write, he's got prayer groups to lead, he has appointments. Maybe the kids in the back of the minivan are screaming and yelling, he can't stop, he's got to keep going. Maybe he's in his temple clothes, doesn't want to get dirty. But are any of these reasons really valid reasons not to help? Absolutely not. A priest had a duty. If a priest on a journey came across a corpse, he had a duty to bury the corpse. But this priest comes across a live person who needs some help. He had an even greater duty to this man who needed help. I believe that this pathetic priest's own self-love helped him to help himself to the other side of the road. But behold, Savior stands on the horizon. Another holy man of God is coming soon. Likewise, a Levite. A Levite would be like an assistant to the priest, someone involved in the temple worship practices, perhaps even a, a musician. The Levite came by that spot and saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. The Greek suggests here a deeper examination. Here's what it says. Likewise, a Levite, Elthon, came by that spot. Edon saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. The Levite, just like the priest, failed to love his neighbor as himself. I believe that the lousy Levite here, his own self-love, has helped him to help himself to the other side of the road. But I must confess to you that I have been like the pathetic priest. I have been like the lousy Levite. I've been the pitiful pastor whose own self-love helped him to help himself to the other side of the road. The pathetic priest, the lousy Levite, the pitiful pastor, epitomize the danger of self-love. Self-love propels a posture of pride. I am so important. I've got a lot going on. I have a schedule. I am busy. I can't help. I'm too important to love, to care, to listen. Self-love assumes an attitude of arrogance. I am definitely not stooping down to her level or his level. Self-love naturally neglects the needs of others. Because mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? Well, you are, Jeremy. Of course you are. So who cares about this other guy in the ditch? Well, God does. And apparently someone else does too. Verse 33. says, A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with Compassion, And so he stopped to help. This Samaritan 
goes down the same road, literally and figuratively, as the pathetic priest and the lousy Levite. He came, he saw, just like the rest of them. But his own self-love did not help him to help himself to the other side of the road. No, he stopped to help. Why? What would motivate him? What would move him to do this? Well, it says that he was moved with compassion. The Greek is splagnizomai. And I, I, always, I don't know why I always do this, but whenever I say splagnizomai, I rub my tummy. Because splagnizomai, it, it means to be moved in the inward parts. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, literally. To be moved in your bowels. To be moved deep down. This man is moved entirely with compassion. This is radical. This shatters all expectations. Crazy. Why? Why is this so radical that the the third traveler becomes the hero of the story, a Samaritan? Well, because Jews did not particularly like Samaritans and had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were regarded as racial and religious half-breeds. Why? We've got to go back to 722 BC. When the Assyrian Empire decided to conquer basically the whole ancient Near East, they had a policy. When they would destroy a nation, they would take those conquered peoples from that conquered nation and intermix them with other conquered people from other conquered nations. And so in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, some of those people get uprooted, transplanted into other places in the ancient Near East. And other conquered peoples from the other conquered places of the ancient Near East were transplanted and brought to the northern kingdom of Israel. And those Gentiles intermixed and married with the Jews who were there around the city of Samaria. And therefore, they became the Samaritans. They were viewed as the intermixed leftovers from the Assyrian conquest. Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra's day after the Babylonian captivity. They set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim and challenged the temple of Jerusalem. The Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative. And the Samaritans looked for a personal Messiah who would be like Moses. Jesus is doing something radical here by making the hero of the story a Samaritan. Jesus is challenging the longstanding tension and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. By making the hero of the story a Samaritan, Jesus demolished all boundary expectation. Things like social position and race and religion and region, they count for nothing. Because the man in the ditch just needs help. And he's not going to discriminate over his potential helpers. He just needs help. He doesn't care if they're Samaritan or Jewish. He just needs a helping hand. The Samaritan and his own self-love does not keep him from not loving this man. He goes and loves 
The Samaritan's own self-love does not help him to help himself to the other side of the road. He cares and loves for this man in a tremendously deep way. In verse 34, it says, The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. That's like your first century form of Neosporin. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. Jesus says, what do you think? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. The one? Really? Who are we talking about here? The one? No, we're talking about the Samaritan. But here we begin to see that even the legal expert cannot even bring himself to say this. His own self-love is preventing himself from saying, no, it was the Samaritan who loved him. It was the Samaritan who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The Samaritan is... I mean, this uh, legal expert, far too consumed by his own self-love, that he's unwilling to give credit where credit is due. Self-love can be a, a very dangerous thing. I have a friend who used to be a youth pastor for a long time. He worked his tail off junior high and high school ministry. He put in about 60 plus hours a week. I think the number he told me it was 67 hours a week for bare bones type of pay. For meager table scraps of a paycheck. But all the while, he saw the senior pastor who he felt was not working nearly as many hours as he was. Maybe he was working 66 hours compared to his 67 hours. And this ate him up inside. Because this senior pastor was making triple, if not quadruple, the salary that he was making, my friend, the youth pastor. Ate him up inside. He was filled with this bitterness about this injustice, this wrong that he felt was done to him. He was eating him up. He found himself at Hume Lake Christian Camp. He was leading a group of high schoolers or junior hires there. And, and there was a great speaker there at the camp named Francis Chan. An incredible man of God, Christian pastor and author. Incredible man. And he felt, this is the perfect opportunity. I'm going to bend the ear of Francis Chan. And I'm going to hear from Francis Chan about how unjust this situation is. And how we are going to, me and Francis, stick it to the man. So he finally got an audience in front of Francis Chan. He's a real popular guy, good guy. And he's sitting there across the table from Francis and he begins to regurgitate his whole story about the injustice and the wrong and the hatred and the bitterness. He's just like throwing up, vomiting all over Francis, who he said was intently listening, 
and watching. He said that after he had finished completely regurgitating this injustice, he said Francis sat back, folded his arms, said one line. He said, huh. You think you deserve more. Self-love speaks the language, I deserve. Self-love speaks the language, I am important. Look at all the work that I do. All the things that I've been doing that no one appears to see. Self-love speaks the language, I am better than you. Self-love seeks personal prestige, recognition, accolades, and attaboys. It's the complete opposite of what Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul writes to the Philippians here, Don't do anything for selfish purposes. But with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. I want to welcome the band back up as we begin to wrap things up. Self-love is selfish. But you know what? Self-hate is selfish too. Self-hate. How can self-hate be selfish? I hate myself. How is that selfish? Well, because with self-hate, we are so concerned with ourselves. I hate my life. I hate myself. I hate my hair. I hate my skin. I hate how I think and I hate how I feel. And I'm so consumed with how much I hate myself that I'm completely selfish. And what happens when I begin to continue to live in this cycle of self-hate? I believe the lies. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Uh, Definitely not you. You're ugly. You're fat. You're stupid. You have no friends. Nobody loves you. No one cares for you. You are worthless. But you know what's my favorite part about a lie? Is that it's not the truth. My favorite part about a lie is that it's not the truth. It's not reality. It's not actuality. But the real, honest, authentic, actual truth is that God loves you. No matter what anyone has ever told you. No matter what you have told yourself, no matter what you think, God loves you. And that's the truest truth about you. The reality is God does not make junk. Therefore, you are not junk because God has created you. But everything in this world will tell you otherwise. Everything in this world will tell you you are nothing. You are junk. Just look in the mirror. Don't believe the lie. God loves you and so do we. So how do I get out of this cycle? How do I live in a healthy perspective of who I am? Well, we first have to realize that God loves us. 
That we are created in God's image and in his likeness. That God knit you together in your mother's womb. That God says that you are special. That that you've got purpose and abilities and gifts unlike anybody else. And I believe that this love of God, this love of God, that it should fill us up so much. We are driven, we are driven from selfish, self-seeking, self-love. That we are catapulted into the loving arms of God. Because mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? The truth is, God is. Always was and always will be. But guess what? You are loved by Him. That He cares for you. That He knew you together in your mother's womb. That He has created you with specific purpose and abilities and gifts. And He's got goals for you. He has a future for you. So don't give up now. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to remove anything from your lap that might be distracting you. Just to close your eyes and just listen. You know, maybe you're here today. You feel like or you identify with the person who's been beat down. Maybe it's the world that's been beating you down. Or maybe it's the people or the circumstances of your life that have knocked you down. And you feel stripped, beaten. You feel left for dead. You feel worn out. You feel bruised and bloodied. You can taste the dirt on your lips can't get up. Your strength is gone. And maybe you've believed the lies. That you're not good enough. That you're ugly. That you're a failure. That you are worthless. Maybe this has brought you to a place where you hate the person you see in the mirror. But I want you to know You are not alone. That Jesus is here like the good Samaritan to help you up to your feet. If that's you today, it's time to take a stand. To say, I am not going to hate myself because God loves me. So if that's you today, If you felt beat down by the world, by yourself, by other people, to where you can't get back up. With the strength of Jesus, with the strength of God, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, why don't you just stand up right now? Everybody's eyes are closed. If you feel beat down, just go ahead and stand up. 
respond to God here. God, I am yours and I know that you don't create junk. Help me when I look into the mirror, Lord, to see your handiwork and your creation and that I would begin to see each and every day more and more just how much you love me. And that this love can spill into the lives of those around me. You know, maybe you're here today feel like or you identify with the person who crossed over to the other side of the road. And maybe it's not that you're too busy. Maybe it has nothing to do with any excuse that you could come up with. Maybe the fact is that you care more about yourself than you do about anybody or anything. When you cross over to the other side of the road, it, it just eats at you. you. You know you want to help. And every time you don't help, you're left thinking, God, I should have stopped. I should have done something. If that's you today, it's time to take a stand to say, I'm sorry, God, that my self-love has kept me from loving. If that's you today. Why don't you stand up? Why don't you stand up? I know I'm standing up. God, I am yours. And I don't deserve anything. I am better than no one. I am not the most important. I am not the best. But this I know, I am loved. I am loved by you, God. And God, you deserve everything because you are the best. You are better than anyone. You are the most important. So help me, God. To experience your love. And maybe it's, it's not a feeling. But it's just this truth. It's this knowledge that I need to hold on to. And may I be so filled with your love. That it just seeps out of me. And into the lives of those around me. Jesus we thank you. That you have loved us so tremendously. God, we aren't afraid to stand up and say, Jesus, I need more of you and less of me. Because, Lord, we have failed. We have we have rebelled against you. But God, you are continually there to pick us back up. So help us not to beat ourselves up. But to take your hand because you're pulling us up. You've got great plans for us, Lord. And it's not going to be easy. And we know that everything in this world is against us. Everything in this world is preventing us from coming to church and living the life of discipleship. But Jesus, you are all powerful. And we believe that you have triumphed over the grave. So if you're in here today and you need that start, Jesus, come into my heart. Become my King of kings, my Lord of lords. I believe you died on the cross for me. And you rose again for me. 
May I follow you, Lord. Out of my self-love and into your loving arms and into the life of loving others. We praise and honor you, Jesus. It's in your name.